0: This is a production by One and All Media. For more, head to oneandall.media.
1: As we begin this series, with this first message, I want to answer three questions. One, what is happening in our world today? Two, how are we supposed to respond? And three, when will the end come? What is happening in the world today? How are we as Christ followers supposed to respond? And when will the end come?
0: Today, today with Jeff Fines. Welcome back to Today with Jeff Fines. My name is Aaron. We're continuing in our new series titled "Don't Panic," and we're gonna finish a message with Pastor Jeff that we started last time, looking at Revelation chapter thirteen and the beast of the sea. Pastor Jeff says these are the times that the wheat becomes separated from the chaff and it can be easygoing as a Christ follower when nothing is on the line. But when trouble comes, the reality of who we are truly emerges. Let's see what else Pastor Jeff can unpack from Revelation chapter 13.
1: Now we come to the third act of the play. And this is where the beast of the sea enters into this third act. Let me give you a a kind of a a drawing of what John sees in Revelation 13, again, that describes the type of events that will occur during the last days, the age of the church. And this is kind of a, a drawing, chalk drawing of what John saw, which may be confusing to you and me, not so much to him. We're told that he sees a beast coming out of the sea. And it has seven heads and 10 horns. The number seven and the number 10 all throughout scripture represent power and authority. And these horns are covered with crowns. And there are two types of crowns in Revelation, the diadem crown, which is powerful and authority, authoritative, but you also have the Stephanos crown, which is only worn by the Christ followers who also have power and authority, but the Stephanos crown is one of martyrdom. And we're told that each of the seven heads have written on them blasphemous names. What is a blasphemous name? Blasphemy means calling someone God who is not God, attributing God's power to a man or a living thing. So the beast rising out of the sea claims to be God or it claims to have powers associated with God. So whatever this beast represents, whoever or whatever he represents, he, it sets itself up as if it has absolute authority, seven heads, 10 horns, the diadem crown, power, authority. And we're told that the beast resembles three creatures. In verse two, the beast I saw resembled a leopard, but had feet like those of a bear and a mouth like that of a lion. Now, when John read this, he would have known that these animals are all native to Palestine. And all of these animals represented the major players or powers in the biblical era with which John would have been familiar. So the body of a leopard, that's a metaphor of ancient Greece. Greece was referred to as a leopard because of the swiftness and agility of its military. When he saw that the feet of the creature were like those of a bear, that would have been a metaphor for the ancient Medo-Persia empire, which was attributed to strength and stability. It was difficult to move the empire. And then the mouth was that of a lion, which was a metaphor for ancient Babylon, which represented brute force and power and overwhelming influence. So John's mind would've immediately not gone to one person, but to the general idea of powers and authorities and kingdoms that are anti-Christ and anti-God. And then in verse three, we're told, from where does the beast of the sea get his power? The dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. Now we already know who the dragon is based on Revelation 12. There's no doubt Satan is the dragon. So these powers and authorities get their power from Satan himself. So who does Satan empower then in John's mind? It would have been governments and authorities who do what? Verse five, the beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise its authority for 42 months. Well, there we have it. Whoever this is, its authority lasts. Let's go back for 42 months. How long is 42 months? It's not literal. It's the time between Jesus establishes his kingdom at Pentecost and the time of the parousia until the second coming, three and a half years, the period known as the church age. And so these governments set themselves up as the final and absolute authorities of mankind without respect, reverence, or appeal to God. You know, we have an Old Testament example of King Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 4, verse 28 through 30. We're told as the king was walking around on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he says, is not this the great Babylon I have built as my royal residence by my mighty power and for my glory of my majesty? And it wasn't very long after that, he was living in the wilderness eating locusts. The beast of the sea, we're told, in Verse six, opens its mouth to blaspheme God. In other words, to set itself up as the ultimate authority and to slander his name, the name of God and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. The dwelling place is slandered. The temple or the house of God And those who live in heaven are blasphemed. God's ministering servants, the angels, as if there's no power outside of materialism. Or possibly it could be a reference to Christian martyrs. Those who have paid the ultimate sacrifice now are blasphemed. We're told in verse seven, it was given power, that is the beast of the sea, to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. Which tells us that as a rule, Christ's followers are not protected from the evil legislation and prosecution or persecution of blasphemous governments. John is being shown a vision whereby he now understands, and maybe he would have been asking this question as he writes this. By the way, for those of you who do not know, John is the writer of the book of Revelation. He was exiled on the Isle of Patmos because of his faith and because of his commitment to Christ. And he might be asking, why has God allowed this? Why will God not protect me from Rome? And suddenly he sees this vision and perhaps it is communicated to him that Christ's followers will also suffer the impact of godless governments, that we have not been given a promise on the terrestrial terrain somehow to be protected from evil and the pain and suffering caused by governments who set themselves up as authoritative as God. We're told this beast was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. In other words, its influence is exhaustive. Every tongue, tribe, and nation will be impacted to some degree by the godless kingdoms of this world. Now, let me go back and remind you of something again. Here's where the nature of apocalyptic literature, I've mentioned this a few times. This is a specific genre of literature, and it commutes Literal things through figurative language. Not every Bible in the, or not every book in the Bible does that. Some books of the Bible are poetry, others are history. It's meant to be taken literally. But this is apocalyptic literature. And a sign, no pun intended, of apocalyptic literature is that it communicates through signs. Now, the question is then, if it communicates through signs, semano, signifying, that means that the beast of the sea, this figure that we keep looking at again and again is not representative of one person or even one event. This is a representation of the types of governments and authorities that will dominate planet earth from the time Jesus established his kingdom till the time he returns. This authority gets its power from Satan. It operates out of unrighteous motives. It exists during the last days. It typically denounces God and the people of God. And the nature of apocalyptic literature is not to signify what will happen everywhere at the same time, rather to signify the types of events that will happen in various places, in various times. So when we read these events occurring during the time of the church age, it won't happen everywhere at the same time in every people, but, it will happen in every century and every generation to some degree. So if you look only through the lens of America, if you're an American or Australian or New Zealander or from the United Kingdom, where if you only look through the lens of your land and you say, well, where are God's people being persecuted and where does the government blaspheme God and where are the people of God discriminated against? If you do that, you'll forget the reality that governments all around the world with few exceptions are tolerating Christians, but are moving culture away from what they consider to be archaic beliefs about God. Other governments in Muslim countries aggressively burn down churches, imprison young Christians, and in some cases, execute them. And around the world, there is a concerted effort in higher education to undermine the historical Jesus and the validity of the Bible. But even in America, when you stand for things of Christ, when you stand for the things of Christ, you will be persecuted, often alienated, and sometimes marginalized. When you stand up for traditional marriage and traditional family and traditional sexuality, you are hated, ridiculed, and persecuted. A few years ago, one famous leader in Washington said that Christians will be the Jews of the 21st century. And what he meant by that is Christians today will become the enemy of the people because they see us as stifling forward progress to an unholy political and social agenda. However, this is not a new thing. It's been happening throughout human history, beginning with the Romans. Rome hated the Christians because they stifled future progress. They were considered atheists because the Christ followers would not become polytheistic. They would not worship the Roman gods. And as a result, and John would have understood all of this, which means he would have understood to some degree the symbol he's looking at, when something tragic happened in Rome, whether it's earthquakes, floods, famines, whatever, the Christians were blamed, which if you think about it, is a logical conclusion. Because if you really believe the emperor is God and the Christians refused to worship him, then the Romans would have thought that the gods of the Romans were punishing Rome on behalf of what all the Christians were doing. Think of where John's mind would have gone when he described verse five and six, the beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise its authority for 42 months during the entire church age. It opened its mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. Well, that would have made sense to John. Rome was known as the city of gods. Roman emperors were worshiped. They were believed to be the sons of God. People bowed down and worshiped the rulers. They paid homage to the emperors. They believed Rome was supernatural and invincible. No other power was like it. No one could wage war against it. Rome did indeed blaspheme God. He's not God, the emperor's God. Rome did indeed slander God's name and his dwelling place. God does not live in the temple, they said. God lives in the palace. He's the emperor. And Rome slandered those who lived in heaven or live in heaven. The only powers they said in the heavens are the Roman royalties and their sons who have gone before. So John continues in verse seven, it was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. Again, Christ's followers will be persecuted in a world that operates under the sway of the evil one. I read an article not too long ago in Forbes magazine that said persecuted Christians are not given much hope in 2020 and beyond. And there are now 50 countries where Christians face the most severe types of persecution from death to torture, to property destruction, to rape, to kidnapping, to crucifixion. And anger against Christianity is on the rise, but it has always been on the rise. This is nothing new. Think of where John's mind would've gone. If you think about Nero and what he did, he was a cruel tyrant. And in order to divert from himself, the suspicion that he actually started the fires of Rome, he instigated a widespread genocide against the Christians. He blamed it on them. Nero desperately wanted the Senate to pass a policy of persecution. So he blamed Christ's followers. He wanted a state sanctioned policy of death and he got it. He crucified thousands covered them with pitch and used them as lamps along the streets. But in 60 AD, Nero committed suicide and many believed that that would be the end of Rome. In fact, after the death of Nero, the persecution of Christians in Rome came to an end, but it was short-lived because soon to follow was the emperor Domitian. He restored the glory of Rome, he brought revival to the city and its people, and he was the first emperor to sign the edict of a state-sanctioned killing of all Christians. See, John, I believe, would have thought that was the meaning of verse three. One of the heads of the beast seemed to have had a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. The whole world was filled with wonder and followed the beast. So I think verse three in John's mind would have identified Rome. It appeared to die, but it was resurrected and continued its atrocities. But the reality is, as we've said before, we're talking about apocalyptic literature, We're talking about things that signify the types of things that will happen 1260 day, 42 months, time, times and a half a time, or during the time of the church age. And if that's true, then we should see this type of thing happening not only in John's time, but throughout human history. And this is exactly what we see. As soon as one anti-Christ, anti-godly government is destroyed, it's not very long before another one takes its place. You say, Jeff, that's depressing. Yes, it is, and it's the result of the fall. And governments who exhibit godliness do come and go. They are few and far between. They may do some good sometime, but we're told underneath, governments are typically filled with people who gain absolute power, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And that's why John makes it clear. We know that we are children of God in 1 John 5:19, and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. Are there some good people in government? Yes. Do some do some good? Of course. But typically, and I don't know any other way to say it, governments stink. The powerful oppress the weak, the rich exploit the poor, and no system of government has ever solved the problem associated with the human heart. And that's why the church, and only the church, is the hope of the world. While some Christ followers will feel the call to enter the political realm to bring the light of Christ into the dark setting, but it must be remembered that although Daniel would have saved some, he still could not prevent the destruction of Babylon. How long will this type of thing last? Antichrist, anti-godly governments? Again, the beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise its authority for 42 months. How long is 42 months? 1260 days, tom-toms, half a time. In other words, during the entire time of the last days before Christ returns. So, where do we go from here? In verse four, People worship the dragon because he'd given authority to the beast. And they also worship the beast and ask who is like the beast who can wage war against it. Someone will say, Pastor Jeff, now listen carefully. Pastor Jeff, the people really worship Satan. This is in reference to a system, an order, a rule of influence that a person chooses to follow. So when the writer says, we know we're people of God, but the whole world, he's not talking about the people necessarily or the land. He's talking about the order. The whole world order is under the control or under the sway or influence of the evil one. Now listen carefully. I'm gonna read a lot of scripture. We're heading around second, almost a third. Please stay with me. Jesus is very clear here. He says in Matthew 12, he who is not with me is against me and he who does not gather with me scatters abroad. It is not necessary to oppose Christ to be against him. If you do not embrace him as Lord and savior, if your values and goals and objectives and the way of life are not the same, if you do not pursue a righteous and pure life outlined by the word of God, if you do not refrain from idolatry, sexual immorality and the sins of the flesh, if you do not live a life that dies to self and lives for Christ, then you are against him. Even if you believe he's a good teacher, you may even believe that he died for your sins. You may even have a healthy respect for God, but if you never allow him to transform your heart and life, and he makes no real impact on the way that you live or the decisions that you make, if he's only simply an addition to your life rather than the replacement of it, then in the words of Kyle Adelman, you may be a fan, but you're not a follower. And worse yet, the book of Revelation actually says that you are a follower, even a worshiper of Satan. You may not be a member of the occult, but you are following his ways and the ways of the world, pursuing the same things everybody else is pursuing. And you're giving ultimate worth to his way of living and you've never died yourself to live for Christ. What a rude awakening it will be on the day of accountability for so many. When Jesus says, depart from me, I never knew you. You say, Jeff, that seems so narrow. Yep. Matthew 7, Jesus says, enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life and only a few find it. We all need a gut check. This is serious business. In the tradition of Nero, many will come. They will be present in every generation, in every century. They may not be everywhere, but they will always be somewhere the Nero's and Domitian's and the Stalins and the Mussolini's, the emperors of the East, the dictators of the West, will mock God, will abuse his fellow man, will live as if there's no accountability, will attempt to annihilate those who oppose him. And his power will be strong because it's given by Satan himself who can oppose him. And these types of stories will be repeated again and again throughout history, in every century, in every generation. But the larger point we should not be surprised when we see governments and culture under the influence of Satan drift away from God, become aggressive toward Christ's followers, and ultimately persecute the church of Jesus Christ. Which is why the writer says in verse eight, and inhabits all inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast. They'll all follow his lead. All whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life, the Lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. It seems harsh to say that all who are not for Jesus are Satan worshipers, but in a sense, they are because they live by his rules. Don't you see? There are only two ways to live, passionately pursuing Jesus or passionately pursuing this world. And when you chase after the same thing that everyone chases after, money, power, wealth, when you refuse to become a person of great sacrifice and generosity, therefore imitating your Savior, you reveal the nature of who you really are. And the sad thing is that we've all fallen for the lie that we can be neutral where Jesus is concerned. The important thing that we ask ourselves in a message like this, and I know you were hoping that we would get to how do we respond and, and, and when will the end come? But we have to lay this groundwork in order for us to get the very most, the very best out of this series. Because ultimately the series is called God's Got This. He knows what's happening in our world. And I can tell you that God's got our back. But the question with which I wanna begin the series is do you have his? How are you living your life? I think some of us are gonna arrive in heaven and God's gonna look at us and say, but I sent the prophets and I sent my preachers and I gave you the written word to warn you of the power of a world system that could cause you to stray away where suddenly you'd find yourself so far from God, the pursuits and the passions of the world, if you're not careful because they're governed and ruled by a world system, you'll find yourself pursuing and passionate about those things. So as we began the series, I ask everyone, what kingdom are you living for? Who holds sway over you in every decision that you make? is Jesus Christ, the Lord of your life, your master, and you are following him, and you are watching carefully, and you are saturating yourself with the word and the power of God, so that as you put on the armor of God every single day, when the battle comes, you will be able to stand. Conforming your mind, not to the ways of this world, but to the image of Christ so that you may be able to prove what is acceptable and what is good and resist the fiery darts of the evil one designed to rob you of your joy and ultimately of your life. At the very least, decide this day whom you'll serve. Father, thank you for the depth of your word. And I pray as we start this series that we would be overwhelmed with the word of the prophets and how clear they spoke to us. That none of this catches God by surprise, that he's got this. That ultimately we will be with him in glory in a kingdom that will last forever. And that this world is not our home. Even though there's so much good in it, that you cause your rain to shine on the righteous and the unrighteous. It is never to be our home, never to satisfy the way only you can. Help us to be strong, to stand firm so that we might not fall and be sucked into the vortex of a world that is constantly moving away from you. In Christ's name, amen.
0: You've been listening to Today with Jeff finds. Next time, we'll bring you a new message from Pastor Jeff. You can listen to more messages like this. Just search for Today with Jeff finds wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, you make me-